Hello. Researching and presenting this podcast, it's a labour of love. Still, on those occasions when someone tells me they listen to the show or even pays it a compliment, I don't even try to hide my gratification. I want to be appreciated. But it goes further. Not only do I care about how many people listen, but I can't help comparing Bridges favourably with those innumerable podcasts that have little or no profile, or unfavourably with those that have a mass audience. It appears that even for something that I do for its intrinsic rewards, I can't help but be continuously swayed by how other people rate me. My susceptibility to status signals indeed yours too, in almost everything you do, will come as no surprise to today's guest on Bridges to the Future. For him, status games are, for better or worse, what makes the social world go round. Welcome to the podcast that tries to make sense of our new reality. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA. I'm delighted to be joined by award-winning writer and photographer Will Storr, author of a fascinating and, I have to say, in some ways, rather disturbing new book entitled The Status Game and subtitled On Social Position and How We Use It. So, Will, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you, Matthew? Yeah, I'm enjoying the last day of summer. By the time this is broadcast, summer will be a distant memory. But today... Today, it's hot and lovely. Yes, all three days of summer. All three days, exactly. (laughs) Now, let's start with the core hypothesis of the book, that human beings are compulsive players of status games, and that this, this characteristic is responsible for some of our greatest flaws, but also some of our greatest achievements. So it's hard because it's a long book and it covers a lot of ground, but the kernel of the argument will. Well, it's that status has been found to be a fundamental kind of human need. You know, it crosses gender, class, culture, age. We're all, you know, often obsessively interested in our own status. And being that it's a fundamental part of the human condition, then, you know, wherever we look in human life, pretty much we're going to find its traces. So that's what the book's sort of trying to do, really, is trying to look look again at human life, but through the lens of status driving. And that very convincingly argued, and and one of the questions I had, which you address in the book, but one of the questions that that was coming up into my mind as I read the thesis unfolding was, but why? Because, you know, why would we have evolved to have been obsessed by our status? Because, as we all know, we spent 99.9% of our time on Earth living in small, pretty egalitarian bands of people who knew each other very well. This is a long way away from the worlds of social media and the Kardashians and the rest of it. So from where did this status instinct evolve? Well, it predates the bands. You know, when we were animals, before we were human, we were competing for status, but with dominance, like like most animals do, you you know, use dominance and aggression to compete for status. And the more status you get, the, the better your resources, the better your chances of you maximize your ability to survive and reproduce. So it's, it's that kind of fundamental. And this idea, you know, of course, we had, you know, relatively egalitarian lifestyles when we were in those kind of hunter-gatherer bands. But they were egalitarian, not because we were kind of living in this 
kind of communist utopia, but because people were very, very interested in their own status. And, and so everybody was jostling for position and, you know, making sure that nobody got too high above their station. So the relative egalitarianism of those hunter-gatherer groups were as a result of everybody's keen interest in relative status. So I guess by now listeners are starting to say, well, hang on then, what, what do you mean by status? It sounds like it's a thicker concept than the way in which we use it in a, in a kind of everyday sense to, to mean simply, as it were, how other people rate us. Well, yes and no. I mean, it, it really is about, you know, how other people rate us. And that was extremely important when we were, you know, evolving in these bands, because that's a life or death, ultimately a life or death judgment. If, if people in those hunter-gatherer groups rated you badly, then you, then you would begin to suffer very badly. Initially with, you know, mockery, social distancing, you know, rising to humiliation, ostracization, and even death, you know, it, it's it's argued that capital punishment was once a human universal. So what other people thought of you is, is of extreme importance to human beings, because we are, as you know, a, a highly social ape, you know, we're a very, you know, hypersocial kind of creature. So it's easy to dismiss the idea of, oh, what other people think of me, but, but it's of utter kind of core importance to the human condition. So in a sense, is it an inevitable outcome of the fact that we have a theory, human beings have a theory of mind, as it were, as philosophers do describe it, which is that we, we have a view about what other people are thinking. And as soon as we have that capacity to think about what other people are thinking, the question occurs to us, what do they think of us? Well, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and there are lots of psychologists who could subscribe to the Robin Dunbar thesis that, you know, the reason that language evolved in the first place is to swap gossip, to, you know, tell stories about other people's moral behavior and thus, you know, raising them or dropping them in status, because that's how we kept our tribes coordinated. That's how we kept them functional. And, and that was our system for the carrot and stick system for getting people to behave in the interest of the tribe rather than the interest of themselves. And like a lot of accounts of state of humanity and the issue of how our prehistorically evolved brains are suited to the modern world, there's a big break in your story around the kind of enlightenment in terms of before that, we had different strategies for managing status. So if you go back to those hunter-gatherer groups, certainly modern tribes that still exist, that still, as far as we know, may have some of the patterns, one of the characteristics that's been observed is if someone appears to be boastful, the group will turn on them. There's a, I think there's one tribe, isn't there, that has a ritual of insulting the meat, that if a hunter does, yes, too, right, if a hunter yes. does too well, the hunter is expected to be self-deprecating about that if they're not going to be kind of in trouble with the group. So in egalitarian groups, in bands, there were strategies to not allow people to get above their status. Then you see the emergence of what we might as a shorthand call civilization, mass society. And from that point... The way we deal with status is through relatively rigid hierarchies. So those status games are being played, but they're being played within the parameters of a kind of sense of an escalator that goes from God at the top to the humble surf at the bottom. And whilst that's not great, if you're a humble surf, at least that means you're not constantly playing status games in the same way because there are boundaries on it. There are boundaries on how far you can go up and how far you can go down. It all starts to change, though, when we get into the modern world, doesn't it? And that's where we see 
both sides of your story, really. We see the pathologies of status, which I'll ask you about in a moment, the obsessions with status, the way status has got out of hand, as it were, in the modern world, but also the dynamism of status, the way that status drives us to incredible achievements. So would I be right first, Will, in saying that you see the kind of Western Enlightenment as a kind of break point for the emergence of a, of a very different context for status? Yeah, the Enlightenment, but before that, even beginning in the Republic of Letters, this this amazing thing that started happening that thinkers started to sort of sending letters all throughout Europe, swapping ideas and building on each other's ideas. And to back up a bit, the path I explore in the book is this idea that there are three main ways that humans compete for status. I mean, there are lots of ways, of course, you know, age and beauty being obvious ones. But, you know, in social life, there are three ways. And, and the first is dominance, which has been, as I said before, has been there for millions of years. And it's, you know, it's what we were doing when we were still before we were human. And, and dominance is violence, but also the threat of violence, coercion, bullying, ostracization, that kind of thing. So that's forcing status from other people. That's, you know, but then when we, you know, began to settle down and we went through the, the kind of, you know, self-domestication process, we're living in communities. Of course, you know, physical aggression isn't especially helpful or welcome. So, so we developed other ways of competing for status. And, and this is really where we start competing for reputational status, um, prestige. And so it becomes more important then. But, but even when we were in the hunter-gatherer bands, the idea that you could gain status, gain prestige by proving yourself useful to the group. So if, if you were useful to the band, then you would raise in status. And there are two ways of being useful. The first way is by being virtuous. So by being courageous or generous with the resources or by being somebody that polices the tribe's rules, you know, you get this kind of virtue status. But also by being useful, by showing competence, by being good at, you know, telling stories or being a great sorcerer or a great hunter or a great, you know, finder of tubers or honey. So dominance, virtue and success are the three ways that we evolved to play for status. And if you look at the world around us today it hasn't really changed it's still dominance virtue and success you know you've got sporting superstars and scientific superstars who are winners of success games you've got moral superstars you know gandhi mother Teresa, the pope and so on and you know we still play dominance games you know boxing is a dominance game war is a dominance game so we still have these three ways of playing for status and i think you know through the lens of the status game what defines modernity is this for centuries we were kind of mostly playing virtue games and dominance games it was very Life was kind of small, rule-bound, very religious. It was about knowing your place and staying in it, essentially. But then following the Republic of Letters, the Enlightenment, and then the Industrial Revolution, we start playing success games much more. And that, and that kind of is what kind of defines modernity, really, is this much stronger emphasis on games of success, on rewarding status for the achievement of specific kind of skillful competence-based aims, whether that's you know, creating a, an amazing technology during the Industrial Revolution or in Silicon Valley now or creating a vaccine that's going to sort of beat the COVID pandemic or, you know, coming up with a, with a new kind of efficient rule that's going to make this factory operate at a greater level. So, yeah, that's kind of how the history of the human social world looks through the lens of status. It's, as you say, is this sudden change after the Enlightenment. I'm really glad you put it that way, Will, because I was hesitating before bringing my own favourite thesis about humans and society into play. But I have to when you give that answer, because this was something I noticed in the book. So I've been obsessed for many years with the kind of basic way of thinking about human beings, which says that we are fundamentally motivated by three kind of sets of there are three sets of motivations. Authority, you know, we do what we told, which we associate with kind of hierarchy belonging and values, which is 
doing what the group expects of us, what we think we ought to do given the kind of groups that we belong to. And then finally, kind of doing what we want, a kind of individualism, a drive that's about what's different about us as people. And, you know, what's interesting to me is when I use that account, broadly speaking, what I say is that the pre-civilization period, it was the group that was really the dominant motivation. Then you get into the long period starting with, you know, starting with civilization and moving through to the modern era where the kind of hierarchical force is really the, the 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 critical kind of motivation, the critical frame, and then individualism, which has always been part of the human story, but individualism then starts to become dominant from the kind of Enlightenment onwards until we live in the highly individualistic world in which we live now. And now that theory would argue that in a sense the most effective way to do things is to try to balance these human impulses, to try to balance authority, belonging, and individuals, because they're all drives. Would you say the same for status, that in a sense, what we need in society is that these three different forms of status, the dominance, the virtue, the success, need to be in balance, and that maybe one of the kind of pathologies of modern society is that we put this notion of the individualist notion of status, this success-orientated notion of status, above all others. Well, yeah, the first thing that I want to make clear is, is well, you know, when I'm talking so much about status, we, sometimes I'm, I'm hearing this criticism, oh, he thinks everything's status. And I don't think everything's status. It's just that that's what the book's about. Another sort of kind of theme in the book is, is connection and belonging. As you say, you, you know, the phrase that you often hear is that we're driven to get along and get ahead. So part of being a tribal animal is that we connect into groups. But then once we connect into those groups, we, we jostle for status within them. So connection is just as important to me as status. It's just that the emphasis on the book is on status, but you know, belonging and connection is, is also incredibly important, but separate need. But your notion of virtue status, it seems to me, well, is, is the bit that's the one that is about the group, because virtue is, a, is defined by the group, isn't it? And yeah. so when you seek status through virtue, what you're really saying is I'm doing something for the group. Definitely. Yeah. And success is, you know, success games are going to be much more individualist focus, absolutely, because they're about, look what I've done. Hmm. You know, that's what they're about. And that's what they're about you know, in a hunter-gatherer band, look at this honey I found. I'm amazing. You know, look what I've done. So yes, the emphasis is going to be more on the individual. But then one of the ideas that, that the status game relies on is, is the idea of is social identity theory, which, which was a, which a huge kind of inspiration for the book. And you know, one of my previous books, Selfie, is about individualism. So I've done a lot of research into individualism, but, but it's really sort of skewed my thinking on it a bit, really, this, because you understand that even if you are seeking individual success-based status, you're still in a status game with, with a group of other people. You're still measuring yourself against other people. So in, in your wonderful intro, you talked about the, the podcast status game that you can't help but play. So th there's still a kind of community of, of people there, even though it's a kind of an individual pursuit for you. So yeah, I mean, it's very hard to actually... You know, I think it, put, it puts limits on the idea of individualism. This, you know, it's definitely the emphasis is more on the individual in success games. But but it, you're always playing in a game with other people, whether you're a scientist or a writer or whatever you're doing. You know, it's a really good point. So in a sense, Robinson Crusoe, before Man Friday, Robinson Crusoe, well, couldn't be a cultural individualist because individualism as a cultural category is actually about your relationship to everybody else. It's not just about yourself. Now, I want to take... Three or four of the kind of sub-themes of the book, if we can, Will, because I thought each chapter is fascinating, and I wanted to just pick three or four of these things out. So let's, let's start with an obvious point, which is what has social media done to an already 
kind of hyperbolic status game in the modern world. Well, it certainly exacerbated it. I mean, one of the things, again, one of the themes that picks up from the book that came before this really thematically, which is selfie, is that technology is made lots of these kind of human behaviors a lot worse, but we often blame it for creating it. But but I don't think that's true. I think, you know, selfie was about, we talked about the selfie camera and how when Silicon Valley launched the selfie camera, it was, they called it the front facing camera and they imagined we were going to use it for business meetings and for talking to our nans on a Sunday afternoon. But we just, you know, billions of us just start taking pictures of ourselves. And that surprised the technology companies. So we often blame these companies for coming up with these ideas, but it actually, they're just trying to give us what we want. And I think the same is true of social media. And in the book, as you know, I, I tell the story of the first ever social media website, as we'd recognize it today, which is called The Well and was launched in 1985 in the days when we were still, you know, plugging our phones into modems. And The Well's a bit like Reddit. It was organized into little little sub forums and people would sort of talk and swap ideas and really compete for status. You know, the wine forum and people talking about wine and showing off their wine knowledge. And when that got to a population of about 500 people, the first ever internet troll <laughs> emerged and started, who was a very kind of had, had a bee in his bonnet about men, didn't like men and was attacking all these men. So all the men kind of mobbed up against this individual and got him kicked off the platform and they deleted all of his work. This man happened to be gender non-conforming, so born biologically female, didn't identify as male, but but chose male pronouns. So even in 1986, the cancel culture, they were arguing about pronouns. It just happened in the very first social media website. So I don't think we can, you know, feasibly blame, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey for inventing all this stuff. But certainly what they've done is they've, you know, when you connect humans together, they're going to play status games. This stuff is going to happen. And, and I think where we can point the finger, it really is, especially Twitter, but perhaps not as Facebook. I just don't use it that much. It has molded itself around these often, you know, really diabolically nasty kind of status games, which I would define but in the terms of the book as virtue dominance games, really. It's all about virtue. You know, it's often about about, well, people play success games on Instagram, don't they? Pictures of their holiday and their flat stomach. But there's also virtue games and dominance game on social media, which we would identify with, you know, cancel culture, with, you know, with very, very strict people with this kind of hair trigger response to people saying things that they don't agree with and mobbing up in kind of hatred against them and trying to cause them damage in their real offline lives. I mean, that's, that's in the terms of the book, that's dominance, that's virtue mm. dominance play. So we've kind of gone from a world before social media where our appetite for playing status games was constrained to a certain extent by the realities of everyday life and that we would spend most of our time only with people that we knew and who may have a reasonably fixed view of us and therefore the parameters were not great. And now we live in a world where if we chose to, we could play status games with complete strangers anywhere 24 hours a day. And that is an enormous kind of shift. So if one's saying that our addiction to status games is a pathology, then this technology enables that pathology to have kind of no no limits. Let's turn to another fascinating element of the story, which is the relationship between status games and kind of personal pathology. You give examples of the the fact that so often, particularly young men going on shooting sprees, what one discovers is that what's driving them is a sense of low status, but unfairly low status. And it's that more than anything else that drives them to extreme behaviour. Yeah, when I was still trying to work out whether there was actually a book in status, the litmus test for me was 
okay, so if you're going to argue status is so important, and if you know if this is correct, what you're reading in these academic papers that status is so important, then it must be pretty bad when it's taken away. So let's let's find that out. And so I started reading up papers on humiliation, and you know, humiliation is defined as it's not just the, the removal of status; it's the removal of any any hope of claiming status in the future from those people. You know, you're so you're so far down the status game, you're essentially expelled, and it was all there. I mean, the very worst behaviors of the human animal are tied up in in humiliation everything from spree killing to honor killing to even up to genocide so that's what convinced me that that status was really important but there is a big caveat to that i mean it, it, obviously if it was true that that humiliation made killers of us that there'd be much more killing and what i found when i was looking through the case studies what seemed to be apparent was that actually the most dangerous people are they begin rather narcissistic and grandiose. So they're often very full of themselves and feel entitled to a place at the top of the game. They're, I'm smart, I'm wonderful, I'm handsome, but they're humiliated again and again and again. And if you have that combination and you add in being male, which as we all well sadly know, makes makes you far more likely to compete for status with violence, then you've got a very dangerous cocktail. And, and in the book, I tell the story of three grandiose sort of narcissistic and humiliated men who went on to commit acts of mass killing. And then turning to something we've discussed often on this podcast, which is tribalism, polarization. You also tell a powerful story about the role of status in kind of dogma and tribalism and that a lot of what goes on within tribes, within sects, within kind of social panics as well you talk about to an extent is what's going on there is that the status once you're in a group like that what gives you status is to be the most extreme at the kind of cutting edge of the kind of rage or accusations or claims of conspiracy or whatever so there's something about what counts for status which is what drives groups in politics in particular to become more extreme and more obsessive yeah. Another big breakthrough with me when I was doing my research was this idea that beliefs are status symbols or can be status symbols. And of course, you know, there are millions of beliefs and, and, and most beliefs we don't argue about. We don't argue about the length of the Mississippi River or, you know, how a light bulb works. There are certain beliefs that people go kind of crazy about. And those are beliefs kind of act as, in, in a way, as status symbols, that they're symbolic beliefs. And, you know, you're in the presence of a symbolic belief when you yourself are marking people up and down, depending on whether they believe in that belief or not, you know. So yeah, and then, and then when when you see people, and, and this would be a virtue game. You know, when we're playing virtue games, we're, we're defending the rules of the tribe. It's really the sacred rules of the tribe, the, the, the rules which you know symbolise our people and our, and our game. And you see it very commonly. And in, in in the book, I tell the story of a, of a young woman called Miranda Dinder who kind of fell into a Facebook anti-vax group. And you know, she described very vividly this idea of you know when she joined this group, being surrounded by really impressive mums that she thought were amazing and there being this this idea there that, that you know that, that the more fervently you believed in your anti-vax beliefs the more social kind of status you'd get the more you'd get rewarded and then she started going out into the world and arguing with her cousins arguing with a doctor coming back onto fake running back onto facebook telling everybody what happened and then she got more and more status and that's how that status game worked is that the more fiercely you fought on behalf of your tribe or you know your status game as i'd call it the more status that you earned and so you can see how this 
becomes a feedback loop where people start jostling to fight harder and harder and to, and to, to believe in those sacred beliefs with more and more kind of stringency and perfection in a way. You know, I also tell the story of the you know, the satanic panic in the 1980s, which was just an extraordinary event in, you know, that happened in my lifetime, which looking back on, you just can't believe it happened. But that dozens of people were locked away on the most extraordinary allegations, that, you know, that, that were actually imprisoned for apparently being members of satanic child abuse cults and were doing things like throwing babies at sharks and, you know, flying children from kindergartens to Mexico to be abused by Mexican soldiers, flying them back and then dropping them off at their parents' house that afternoon. Bizarre story that were completely believed by people in the, in the 1980s in America. And as I say, people were actually imprisoned for, you know, on, on these charges. So you see how dangerous it is. And, you know, I've been writing about irrationality for some time now. And, you know, I kind of feel that this is, this is really the kind of ground zero of irrationality. When our status is at stake, we are really vulnerable to, you know, falling for irrational beliefs. And then there's another concept that I found really fascinating. I've been talking to people about it ever since I read the book, which is, the relationship between status leaders and status followers and the concept of cousins, which is the role that followers play in driving forward some of these kind of group pathologies that you've talked about. So tell us a bit more about this kind of concept of the cousins. Yeah, so, so this was another sort of big sort of light bulb moment for me when I read about this idea of the tyranny of the cousins. Not my phrase. I read it in the Christopher Bowen book. And, and he, he, he talks about how discipline is meted out in these pre-modern groups that, you know, of the kind that we, we evolved in. And he talks about how we weren't, and this was a, a huge surprise to me because we didn't live under the threat of the tyranny of leaders. We lived under the threat of the tyranny of the cousins. And, and what he meant by that was that there was rarely one sort of big man, dominant leader that would tell everybody what to do and everybody would obey that person. They were much more egalitarian. And it was much more communitarian. And, and so the people who would feel were the people that he would call the cousins, they're not literal cousins, but they're this kind of elite caste, often, you know, unfortunately, of, of men that would kind of work to get a consensus in the tribe. And he, he tells the story of this of an unfortunate chap in, in the Gabusi tribe in, in Papua New Guinea who was accused of killing somebody through sorcery. And you know, the cousins kind of decided, had a conversation, decided that this individual was guilty of this charge. And, and, and so over the, over the next few days, gossip and moral outrage you know, ran amok in the tribe and, and he ended up being killed and eaten. And so it was amazing to see the similarities with the story that he was telling about this Gabusi tribe to what you see in, the, in these kind of cancel culture mobs on the internet. Because just like if Bohm's right in this idea, just like in, a, in, in those groups that we evolved in, there's nobody on the internet that's deciding we're going to mob up after this person. No one can stop them. No one can stop them. They just emerge. You know, they just emerge. And it's often elite figures on social media. You know, the, the cousins there that begin the accusations against somebody. And then this boiling atmosphere of, of accusation and gossip and moral outrage emerges and boils and boils and boils and it fires at the poor victim of the mob, the online mob, in a way that, that, that echoes really closely this account Bohm gives of the, of the Gabusi tribe. So, so yeah, this idea of that it's the cousins that are in charge in the groups that we evolved. And I thought, for me personally, it, it was revelatory. Yeah, and I, and I can recognise that pattern over and again of people using kind of extremism and dogma to get into power and then finding that they're not able to be effective in power because they've created this cadre of cousins, as you would put it, 
who expect them to continue to pursue the true belief, even though, you know, often when people finally get to power, they realize that they have to be more pragmatic and more adaptive, but they're kind of chained by the movement that they have created themselves. Yeah, that's right. And it's this idea that I think we kind of fetishize leaders just because of how life is in the West at the moment these days. But actually, leaders are very vulnerable. You know, leaders only stay in place if they do their job, which is to generate status for the group. And if they don't, even dictators get swept aside often if they fail their elites. So, you know, it's really about the cousins for me, uh, human life, much more than this idea of this, you know, the individual kind of amazing CEO or politician that Mm -hmm. we might we we might spotlight. But if you put it all together, Will, I couldn't help feeling that running through your book is a pretty gloomy view of human agency. I mean, it feels that you see us as really the victims of the combination of our evolved urges and our thoughtless response to external stimuli. Now, I'm going to come in a second to the things that you encourage us right at the end of the book to do to help resist or at least channel our status compulsions. But I think you see us pretty much as driven, don't you, that we we might give ourselves the illusion that we are in charge of ourselves and in charge of our reactions, but you would say it's much more the combination of urges and external stimuli. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm a complete free will doubter, although, you know, I I have concerns about the idea of free will, but the science is, you know, will confess far too complex for me to understand. But I'm certainly on on the kind of determinist end of things. I think we are, to me, it's self-evident that we are very strongly driven by these urges that we've evolved to pursue. And, you know, whether that's appetite, the urge for sex or the urge for, you know, belonging and status. I mean, you know, belonging and status is this idea that humans just have this compulsion to connect into groups and compete for status within those groups and then have those groups compete with the rival groups. That's the whole of human social life in a way. That's that's religions, that's cults, that's politics, that's sports, you know, that's reality television. You know, everywhere you look in human life, you see that people gathering into groups and competing for status. So yeah, I do think that that's, I wouldn't call us as, vic- I would never say that we're victims of that because I think, you know, we, we've been talking about some of the unfortunate effects of this, but, but there are also enormous positive effects of this. I mean, the main one being the extraordinary fact that our species has evolved a system of reward for behaving selflessly. So when we're selfless and generous and kind and virtuous, not only are we, do we feel an internal reward, we feel good about ourselves, that the people that we're sharing our lives with also you know, make us feel good. And that's a fantastic thing. And that's responsible for you know, so much of the good that we do as a species. And, you know, likewise, the urge that we have to compete for status with competence, you know, that's civilization is built on that. Progress is, you know, scientific progress is built on that. You know, so yes, the very worst of humanity has, you know, status running through it. But also, I believe the very best of humanity does too. So this definitely isn't a self-help book. It's much, much more interesting than most self-help books. But there is a bit of self-help right at the end of it, which is here we are, subject to these evolved urges, subject to this constant barrage of external stimuli. But you think there are things that we can do, there are practices we can adopt that will, they won't insulate us from the status game. Well, they'll partly insulate us from the status game, partly slow us down from just responding like, you know, Pavlov's dog to status signs, but also they'll encourage us to respond to the right status 
criteria rather than the wrong one. So end our conversation with a bit of hope and a little bit of some practices <laughs> that people might adopt. Well, I think the most practical thing is the question that I wanted to ask at the end was, okay, if this is all true, then how should we be? You know, how should we play this game that you've been describing? And so I kind of had a look through some of the science on optimal kind of presentation, social presentation. And I found something interesting there that a lot of the conversation amongst those psychologists kind of matched the three status games that that I'd been describing. People talk about, some psychologists talk about behaving, presenting with warmth and sincerity. Others talk about with, you know, competence. So that maps onto the three status games. So when we come across as warm, we imply, I'm not going to use dominance on you. You know, I'm not going to coerce you or bully you. When we're sincere with people, we signal, well, you know, I'm going to play a virtue game with you, but I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm not going to, you know, flatter you and lie to you. I'm going to be sincere and, you know, I'm going to tell you, be honest with you. And when we're, you know, competent, we're signaling, I'm going to be useful to you too. You know, this game that we're playing together, I'm going to, I bring ability. And with my ability, you can learn from me and and, and we can compete all the better against rivals. So I think that that kind of triumvirate of warmth, sincerity and competence, you know, easier said than done, obviously. But I think that's a really good kind of ideal to try and pursue in your kind of social life. So that's a kind of a real practical one. And I think the other one for me is that is that make sure that you're playing, I call it a hierarchy of games. In the book, I talk about the fact that you just don't want to be playing one status game because when you're playing one status game, you're in a cult. That kind of defines what a cult is. A cult says all of your belonging and status comes from this group. Even your family, you can't get any of that from. It's us and us only. And, you know, when you look at fundamentalist religion, fundamentalist kind of political groups, you know, even online, you see that, you know, that kind of cultish, very tight kind of status play. And I I think it's much more healthy. That's dangerous because it incentivizes irrationality, incentivizes kind of dominant, aggressive behavior to your kind of enemies. But it's also dangerous because if that cult, if that group fails or you're expelled from it for some reason, you know, yourself fails. Who you are fails. So it's much healthier to play a kind of a a variety of games. But you shouldn't play all games equally because actually earning status is is quite hard. You know, it's, it's not always easy. So you need to devote time to it. So that's why I I would, you know, I recommend playing that kind of a hierarchy of games, having that one main game that you put most of your kind of effort into, but making sure it's sort of like a hedge deal that that you're hedging with other things that you're doing in your life, which also give you that belonging and status, which we all need. Yeah, it was funny. I finished the book and I read the advice and I thought it was good, but I still felt having read the book, slightly a kind of despair at humanity. And, you know, the funny thing is I watched Gogglebox that night and I thought, you know, I thought that Gogglebox is a good example of something where your status is acquired simply by being human and idiosyncratic. You know, people not like Love Island or X Factor, wherever you look at it and people are all competing with each other and you're looking at it and thinking whether you're as good as... You watch that program and, and what you just think about is, well... These are just funny human beings, and I'm a funny human being as well. So I think part of the way we deal with status games also is to enjoy things where it's almost impossible to feel better or worse than anybody else because you're simply invited to observe our common peculiarities. Will, it's been great talking to you. The Status Game is a a wonderful book. I can strongly recommend it, including what we should do at the end to try not to play the Status Game quite so manically. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor.
This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the rsa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen. 